Why did the Berlin Wall fall? Was it just economic and uh, militaristic reasons? Or were there something moral and, and something even more behind it? What were the results? We're talking with someone today who has done a lot with her life, but she was behind the Berlin Wall and in uh, Eastern Europe at the time that it fell and has some wonderful insights. So we're very delighted to be talking today with Dr. Barbara Elliott on Theology on Air. That's it. Why don't you Why don't you tell us uh, a little bit about your background and how you ended up uh, in Eastern Europe? And uh, maybe I said Eastern Europe. I know you were on the western side of the wall. Uh, so let's clarify that. But we're also going to want to clarify some terms: you know, communism, Marxism, things like that. I really am interested in knowing what you saw in terms of you know why is communism bad anyway, you know, but, but let me just say quickly, I'm Evan McClanahan. I'm the pastor at First Lutheran here in Houston, and I'm joined, uh, as always, by my, uh, with my co-producer, co uh, Sarah Stone from Memorial Drive Presbyterian. Uh, how are you, Sarah? I'm dandy. And let me give Barbara a proper introduction. Yes. Uh, she is the founder of the Center for Renewal, which serves uh, the leaders of faith-based groups. She's a fellow of the Dominican School of Philanthropy and Philosophy from which she received an honorary doctorate in 2006. Uh, she served in the Reagan administration and President George W. Bush gave her an award for human rights in 2001, honoring her work with refugees and the poor. She's the author of Candles Behind the Wall, Heroes of the Peaceful Revolution That Shattered Communism, and many other articles on civic renewal. She lives right here in Houston, Texas, and she's a professor of liberal arts at the Honors College of Houston Baptist University. Um, and there was another book I wanted to be sure I introduced as, as well, and I quit my mail program. Um, Street Saints? <laughs> Street Saints, thank you. Thank you. I was just pulling it up. Thank you so much. Um, but anyway, so we'd highly encourage you to read those books. Um, and your, uh, the book that we're going to be talking about today uh, will be getting republished. Is that right? In the honor of the 30th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall? Yes, indeed. That is a project that is in motion, uh, but that should happen in the foreseeable future. Um, it's, it's a gift that God gave me years ago, a calling, if you will, that just really turned my life upside down. I had worked in the Reagan White House, um, and I was doing seminars for the titans of industry when they would come there and talk about the Reagan economic program. I moved to Europe and became a reporter for PBS doing international news uh, for a program called European Journal. Um, in 1989, I had a real kind of serious talk with God. I'd had an awakening of faith two years later, and I had turned everything around. I had been going to uh, aristocratic gatherings in castles. I had been going to diplomatic cocktail parties. I had been going to the homes of people who had rolling estates and people with houses in the south of France and yachts and all that. So I was living this life. And I look up one day and I look in the mirror and said, who are you? Hmm. And I really couldn't give a good answer to that. Um, I had grown up going to church, but like somehow that was in another world. Anyway, I met God that morning in a serious face-to-face and said, I've tried it my way and I've made a mess of it. It looks good on the outside, but I know what's on the inside. If you will take this life 
and make it a witness to you. Please do. Hmm. He met me there. He met me there in that moment that literally lit a fire. It hasn't gone out. I've been through a lot of things since it's never gone out. So two years later, I'm all studied up. I've read scripture. I've been discipled. I've gone to retreats. I'm like, okay, God, what do you want me to do? And I didn't get an answer for a while. And when the answer came is what I totally did not expect. The answer was refugees. I'm thinking, this is in the back of my mind, refugees? I don't know how to do refugees. I do dinner parties. You know, like this is what's rolling about in my mind. And God kind of gives me a smack across the face and says, go take care of refugees. Well, at that moment, this was just before the Berlin Wall opened up, there had been a surge of about 300,000 people that had made it across to West Germany somehow. I had been to East Germany. I'd gone over there with this family who had an estate there that had been taken over by the communists. And so I, and I knew what life looked like there. Well, this people surged into Western Germany and there were 13 shelters around Cologne, which is where I live. One friend got exactly the same call. We went to lunch, we sat down. Before I could even say a word, she said, Barbara, we've got to do something about the refugees. Wow. Obviously God was calling us both. So for the next several months, we went to the shelters, we knocked on the doors, we said, what can we do to help you settle here? We helped them find jobs. We helped them find doctors. We brought them food. I tutored their kids in English. We took in one family who lived upstairs for a year. I mean, and we just opened doors. We connected them. Several months after that, God, in the same clarity and prayer again, and I wish I could say he talked to me like this all the time. <laughs> it doesn't, or I don't hear it. But in this one, it was so irresistibly clear. He said, now go find my faithful people in the countries that they left, that they left, the people who resisted because of their love for me, and call it Candles Behind the Wall. And I'm thinking, I've never written a book. You know, I do television articles. I do essays. I, the answer was like, go. So I did. And I started going to the countries that had fallen in that first wave, East Germany, Poland, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, and found the people there that had been smuggling. I found people in the West who had been smuggling Bibles across the, across the borders. I found people who had been bringing them into their homes. Oh, I'm so sorry. This one's off. Quiet. We can edit this out, right? Sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry. No worries. Anyway, so. I went and visited the people who'd been on the receiving end of these Bibles and Christian literature that they had been smuggling across the borders into all of these countries. And I'd get off the train and know I would have the name of my first contact there. And I had no idea who, what they looked like. I just had a name. So I'm praying as I get off the train, oh Lord, send me the right one. And I would get this little blip. I'd be like the man in the gray coat to your left. And I go and I would introduce myself to him and sure enough that would be exactly the man I was supposed to be. Wow. So I would go and I would talk with him for several hours and he'd say, oh you must meet my friend Rudiger and he bundles me into his car and he'd go bum 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 across East Germany on the terrible roads and then he would introduce me to Rudiger who was the man who had stood at the Berlin Wall under orders to shoot the year after it had been built and he refused to shoot because of his Christian convictions. And he convinced the men in his company also not to shoot. Well, they all went to prison 
So this is the story that I get to hear from this one. And it was like that everywhere I went. I would have one contact in a village or a, a city. They would take me there and they said, oh, you must meet Father Borisov in Moscow. I would meet this man who would refuse to cooperate with the KGB, and for that was not ordained for 15 years. Can we, can we pause you for a second, Barbara, and ask you to give our listeners just a little, maybe like a little mini history lesson to situate us where we are in this story. So this is um, yes. kind of what years are you talking about and what had happened that, that brought people to the place where they were in this in situation? Okay. 1961. The Berlin Wall was built to separate the part of Germany that was under the control of the Soviet Union and the part that was controlled by the West. There had been an agreement at the end of World War II, uh, the Yalta Agreement, which divvied up all of Europe after World War II. Russia had been our ally. Right. So a big chunk of that whole map was given to them. The French had some, the U.S. had some, and we divided Berlin it was the German capital, but it was in the East German territory, like this little island of freedom in a Red Sea. <laughs> so from 1948 on, these are the conditions. The Soviets reneged. They were supposed to offer all of these countries elections and autonomy, and they just reneged on their deal. Um, Roosevelt trusted um, Stalin to an extent that he never should have even thought about but they've been our allies, so I mean, what what could go wrong, right? <laughs> Indeed. So, so in the meantime, the wall is built in 1960. The first victim is shot a year later in 61. And the man that I then talked to a year later is standing there right at the spot where he had been shot. Hmm. People on the western side of the wall are going, did you shoot him? And he's going, no. He'd look around to see who was looking, and then he would say, and I don't want to shoot anybody. Yeah. Well, eventually that's what got him arrested. So this is all beginning in 1960-61 with a wall. And the resistance to it is kind of bubbling under the surface all along. There had been, uh, there had been revolts in Hungary in 19, let me get this right, 57. In Czechoslovakia in 68. And then this leads up to the 70s, 80s, and it starts to percolate in East Germany. John Paul II came to Poland in 1979, and after he'd been elected, and it was a wildfire that erupted on the ground as he arrives there, and suddenly there are several million people who greet him. And the communist leaders are looking at this going, holy cow, we can't shoot a million people. It's just not possible. By the way, Western cameras are on it. Mm -hmm. So this, I believe, this peaceful revolution, in a sense, was ignited by his visit to his home country, where he mm -hmm. reminded people who they were. Hmm. You are creatures of God, and you have rights and duties and responsibilities and capabilities that are beyond the state, that are beyond this world. Remember who you are as children of God. Hmm. He lit a fire in them. He was there for eight days. And those eight days changed the world, really. What was ignited there, and he taught them restraint. He said, remember, children, you must exercise this with maturity. You must do this prayerfully. Do not use their methods. 
you are of a level that is higher. You are children of God. And that, I believe, started, that he ignited a long, slow burn that then went across the borders into Czechoslovakia and to East Germany and eventually into Russia. But it was a peaceful revolution. The leaders in uh, Poland were talking to the people in Czechoslovakia, and they in turn were talking to people in East Germany, and they're smuggling articles across the borders. They're smuggling people across the borders. And they're teaching each other, if we're going to resist, it has to be up to God's standards. It has to be peaceful. Can I just go back to the, the Berlin Wall for a second? Because I didn't, I'm embarrassed to say I didn't know this until recently. So I know that we divvied up sort of Europe after the war, but that Berlin was wholly in the east, right? Like you said, it was like a little island in the, in the Sea of Red. Um, but they divided up that city. And so the Berlin Wall essentially, eventually when it was built, it was kind of built like over a weekend or something, right? It just popped up overnight because so many people were, were wanting to go to the West. So, so it, it pops up and it divides the city. Now, how long was the wall though? Cause it extended beyond Berlin at some point. So um, yeah, it all the way along the border between East and West. Okay. Okay. It north then across Germany, um, it, the areas that it could, but then on the other side, you know, so the western border going all the way up to the Baltic and then all the way down Czechoslovakia. I mean, all the way down the Hungary as well. So there literally is a barbed wire fence and in some cases a severe wall where it's barbed wire, concrete, no man's zone with mines, another concrete wall and barbed wire on the other side. Yeah. So what we call a wall was like a, a, a 50 yard or I don't know, 50 foot area, you know, with shooters and dogs and barbed wire and mines like you said it wasn't like hopping a fence it was right. to get over that by that point was yeah. was probably a death sentence so yeah. the and, first day like hopping a fence and a few yeah. people made it over but yeah. after that it got right so why did people want to leave the east let's talk you you know what what was you were there when you were there in the late 80s, right? Do I remember that right? Or early, mid-80s? I got to Europe right at the beginning of 82, and I was there through the middle of 95. Okay, so you were in the Reagan administration, early in his administration, and then, okay, and then, and then you're in Europe. And by then, the Cold War is, is not hot in the sense of actual oh, no. warfare, but I mean, w tensions were extremely high. Yes. Uh, and um, you know, we are all, I guess, still worried about nuclear disaster and so forth. So what, you know, maybe describe for us, what, what was the conflict about? What, what are, what is the very, the different kind of worldview, if you will, between East and West? Uh, what, what, what's different about us? Not in terms of our human nature, but the political views. I will tell you what I saw. I will tell you the manifestations of it. When I went over to East Germany the first time, and that was in, let me get the years right, 82, I think, um, we went to the property that had belonged to my then husband's family, an aristocratic family. They had lost that as the Russians advanced and they were raping the women and killing everybody else. So they fled, you know, my mother-in-law sewed jewelry into the coats of her children and, you know, wow. got part from somebody and they made their trek across the Elba River. They were one of the last ones to get across and then they go down through Germany. So they got out basically with their lives and that was about all. The 
The division that followed after that appropriated all possessions, not just theirs or the aristocrats. Everybody's proper beca property became owned by the government. Mm. So communism claims all property as belonging to the government first and foremost, and then people may work on it, whether that's land for growing crops or whether that is working in an industrial factory, but the fruits of their labors go to the government, which then, according to their theory, will be distributed equally among the people who are there. But in actuality, some are more equal than others in Orwell's language of Animal Farm, and the people who are up the scale in the Politburo or whatever level they are, are actually enriching themselves, and they are the ones with the dacha on the sea resort, and the people otherwise are living at a surprisingly low standard of living. I mean, I went there and I saw this beautiful estate. It was a big farm home, really, that had been divided into little, tiny, cruddy apartments with, you know, mask tape holding up electrical wires and everything run down. And the woman who came to the door to greet us, remember, she said, oh, you're the ones <clears throat> from the West because the family had been sending Christmas packages and that kind of thing. And while we're standing there talking to her and we had to register the car going across the border, we see at the end of the driveway, way far away, the mayor of the town and a police representation is standing there to watch us. Whether we get, we're just, we are from the West, that's all. And we just wanted to see the house where my husband had grown up. So we looked around and everything was incredibly run down and the farmland that had been flourishing was languishing in neglect. So we left and we found out from them later, they had all been interrogated. Oh my gosh. Because they had talked to people from the West. So characteristics of communism put short in this little episode. The communists own the property. It is a reign of fear and terror. You may not talk to other people. You may not have contact with the West. You may not order books from the West. You may not own things on your own. And if you say anything that is suspect, we talked to men in a, in a pub, basically. And they said, if you made a joke about their leaders, you could end up in prison. And one of them told us about it. I said, making a joke, you've got to, you can't, that can't be serious. Said, no, absolutely. So it was a reign of fear. It was a reign of absolute power. It was a reign of elastic enforcement. There were never laws that said you may not do this. There were simply practices. And each little petty official on the way up could be bribed or for other reasons it could lead to elastic application. But you had no rights to appeal it. There were hmm. almost no legal um, ramifications unless it got to be a notable thing that's international and then you've got you know the fund for liberty coming in and, but for the people who are this big you may not think for yourself you may not speak for yourself and you may not own for yourself if you worship you are free to go to a church on sunday but you would then be capped and ever advancing in a job and if you were in the church the pastor was then obligated to report your name if you had anybody baptized report your name if you 
uh, were married in the church. And they were then required to make a report to the communist officials, the Stasi or the KGB, depending on which country, Securitate. Um, and if you refused to, then you would not be ordained. So they had this interwoven net of controlling people's lives against which it was really hard to resist. I mean, I think when we think of communism, we think of you know, some dry economic definition, right? Like, you know, means of production controlled by the state. It's not just that, right? It's, it's, they control everything. They control the words that you say, the thoughts that you have, you know, like Orwell, you know, I mean, thought police, these are ideas that, that come out of resistance to, to socialism. Um, now, from uh, we're all Christians here. I do want to come back to the to the story of the Berlin Wall and it falling, and you witnessing that, and the the various ways, and all the people you encountered along the way. Who are these candles behind the wall? The beacons of light. Um, and we're going to be talking about this actually at our next theology on tap event, which has the question: Was Jesus a socialist? And I'm now realizing that I should not be the presenter for that. You should be, and so I'm a little embarrassed. So uh, anyway, but. Have her in your earpiece, like telling you what to say. Exactly, I might. We might do that. But tell us, because a lot of the times people will read, say, Acts two, where people hold all things in common. You know, and wow, that sounds like what you just described. So, what are the differences between the way that Christians lived a common life and communism? Oh, good question. My students um, raise that question when we get to the Book of Acts. Or I raise it when we get to the book of Marx and then say, okay, what are the differences between this and the book of Acts? So, excellent question. The difference is whether or not one chooses to share one's possessions with another person or whether they are taken from you. You could agree that other people should have wealth given to them under communism, but you had no choice in giving or having any possessions whatsoever. The difference is whether or not your heart leads you to give and whether or not your heart in giving to them is for their well-being or whether you're doing it out of fear mm -hmm. of the fist of the iron system coming down on you. Well-timed clock right there. <laughs> the fist of the iron moon. Exactly. <laughs> That's the main difference. Uh, it's whether or not you believe that people have dignity intrinsically or whether or not they are units working in a big machine. Um, people who have lived under both systems and, and have believed both systems have made some comments about it. Whitaker Chambers was one of those. Uh, he had been a communist believer in the United States he had provided information for the Soviets going across the water to Russia, and he had an awakening of heart and realized this is not consistent with Christian teaching. And the more he looked into it, he concluded that that which compels is not in keeping with what Christ invites us to do. Yeah. That which rules by using violence, which communism does is not the way Christ would have us live. And he said in the end, there are two systems competing in the, in the 20th century. And one is 
the system that is devised by man, and the other is the system that is devised by God. And he said, every man must choose for himself. Hmm. Yeah, oh, there's so many questions. Um, let's go back a little bit to your time when you were in the midst of it, and you were on the western side of the wall, and you ended up helping people sort of, I don't say unintentionally, because it was providential, but, you know, uh, people would come to you and want to help. What was that like, and what kind of help did people need as they were, before the wall fell, as they were trying to escape from communism? And maybe you could, before you do that, and you've done it a little bit already, so maybe we've done it enough, but kind of describe a day in the life. If you're living on the eastern side of the wall, um, you know, what, what, what were living conditions like? What, what were the things that were sort of the, the worst, I guess, parts of a daily life for someone on the east side of the wall? So a, a mother, a wife, who knows that she has to provide meals for her four children at home, might get up at three in the morning to go stand in line because she had heard a rumor that they might have bed sheets at a given store. And she would go and stand in line for maybe four hours, having gotten there, having left at three in the morning, to go and be there with just the rumor that there might be bed sheets for sale. And if she could get any, she would get her arms around as many as she could carry, and if they would let her buy, to take them home. Then she would get in line again to go to try to procure groceries. Meat was incredibly scarce. Um, what was there was sometimes rancid. Fresh produce was scarce unless you grew it yourself on a little plot of land behind your house that they didn't really know about. Wow. Um, you'd stand in line again, and there might be three semi-rotten Cuban oranges available, and there might be you know, one stalk of parsley and a bunch of potatoes, and you would take that home and you figure out, how do I make a meal out of this? You don't say anything to complain about this because there are people everywhere around you, and whether it's your neighbor in the next apartment, or whether it's the person who was at the checkout counter, who, by the way, has a little sign in their window supporting, you know, strength to the Soviet or to the, you know, German system. It, it, and it would be required to put that in their front window to show that they actually were supporting the regime. Now that grocer didn't believe that, but they put it there. That's what Havel has a wonderful story about that, the, the parable of the green grocer. Hmm. And the person who's buying things knows that the grocer doesn't believe that. And the grocer knows, the people know that he doesn't believe it, but it's this necessary fiction in order to not be molested by the secret police. So they would come home <clears throat> and they would have conversations with their children who'd been in school all day. And let's say you have a seventh grader who's taking um, politics and history in East Germany. I actually saw their, uh, the textbooks. Hmm. And one of their girls comes home and says, so it says in my book that the reason the Berlin Wall was built was to protect us from an invasion by the West on the mm -hmm. X. Is that true? And then the mother has a dilemma. If she tells the truth, yeah. it's like handing that child a lit stick of dynamite. Now, she can go back to the classroom the next day and say that. <clears throat> now, the teacher knows that that's the truth, but the other children 
don't know. And if they do, then the accusation comes back to the parent. She can in turn be, oh, fired from her job if she has one, possibly even incarcerated, depending on whether this is a first infraction. So there are all these ways along every step of the day that they are checked. If you wanted to buy a car, you had to wait 13 years in East what? Germany. Yes, I talked to people from whom that was the case. Yeah, but the cars were of such high quality, it was worth the wait. <laughs> yeah, the little trabants, the little trabby, you know, you'd see them by the side of the road with the hood open everywhere, you know, steam coming out. They were just little rat traps. I have a little model of one that I kept on my desk and I rolled back and forth while I was writing candles. Yeah, and you, you developed this system of barter. So you didn't have meat, but your neighbor might. And you could trade an exhaust pipe that you've been hiding in your back closet for the ham that he has. So they do this training. So barter was really what kept them afloat. Barter was illegal, right? I mean, it would have been... Of course. Yeah, of course. yeah. So it was a, a black market. It was capitalism rearing its ugly head. It, impossible <laughs> to keep down. Yeah. No, but not money. I mean, this was just a trade among friends. Yeah. yeah. So... <laughs> So many questions. Oh my gosh, I could talk to you all day or just listen to you. You are fascinating. But we have a question on Facebook and I want uh, to throw this out for you if you if you would like. It, this person says, um, is communism inherently evil by its strict definition or is, sorry, there's a couple of typos, or is it the threats of violence that are evil? And if it's the threats of violence, then why isn't that every system of government than evil, I guess, is the idea. I don't know that every system of government has threats of violence, but I, that's the assumption in the question. Do, does the question make sense? Do you want me to ask it again? Yeah, can you read it again? Yeah, it says, is communism inherently evil by its strict definition? I think that philosophically, like, is it evil? Mm -hmm. Or is it the threats of violence that make it evil? And if it is the threats of violence, then how does that not maybe indict other governments, even current governments today? Okay, that, there are several questions in that. Yeah, me, there are. Feel free to take it whatever direction. Yeah, let me do the best that I can with the beginning of it. As Marx is writing, he is in England. He isn't visiting the factories there and talking to workers, which I think is really interesting. He is erecting this model in his mind. And if you read the Communist Manifesto, which we do, I mean, all of my honors college students read it, he has a list of things that should be accomplished by it. And it's surprising how many of the things actually have been. So universal education for children, for example. I mean, there are a variety of things where the humanizing of the capitalist system, no child labor, for example, has taken place already. I mean, there are a number of the things that he pointed out that needed to happen just in Western culture as a whole, and that many of them have already been realized. Where communism itself um, made the big jump was with Marx and Engels. So Engels took it to another degree, and he had a little bit of interpretation. By the time you get the application in Lenin and then in Stalin, they have added um, violence and the willingness to kill wide scale to that. Lenin is then trying to implement this in Russia. Uh, the Germans thought he was so radioactive that they sealed him in a train and actually took him where he couldn't get out or off until they had delivered him to Russia where they wanted him to foment 
revolution there, mm -hmm. which would then allow the Germans to have their version of totalitarianism, which was National Socialism or Nazis. So by the time we get to Russia, Lenin definitely advocates violence to overthrow everything that was there, the aristocracy and the wealthy and the everybody who's in a position of authority. And then you get to Stalin, who was the greatest mass murderer mm -hmm. of all of history. Most people do not know that. Mm -hmm. He instituted the, um, the starvation policy in Ukraine where at least, I mean, the, the estimates vary. Some say 20 million people died there. Um, the deaths attributed to Stalin alone, again, the estimates vary. I've heard them as high as 100, depends on who you go and look at. But he was responsible for many, many more deaths than Hitler ever was. Um, but he had absolutely no problem in wiping out tens of millions of people in a stroke in order to implement this ideology, which he was sure would then bring about the perfective state of man. Here is the intrinsic error from the very beginning. They believe in the perfectibility of man by human measures. Yeah. And that is the mistake that Rousseau made, the idea that if we just lived in these ideal, pristine conditions, man would be good, intrinsically good. And the answer is no, he will not be. Mm -hmm. Since the Garden of Eden, the flaw yeah. in man's nature is that he will do evil. And, and the system has to take that into account to set boundaries to protect people from the effects of the evil perpetrated by their neighbor or their government. Mm -hmm. And that's the dividing line. Yeah. That's a, I think that's maybe the best explanation I can give why it's intrinsically not a feasible project. Mm -hmm. Can I read a little bit from your book? Um, uh, I, I thought it was such a great summary. And I would like to contextualize this, uh, you know, because I, we, we are we're a certain percentage of, uh, you know, the American Academy, probably the vast majority of it, would consider themselves, you know, communist sympathizers or outright Marxists or somewhere in between. And um, so actually, I think we need to be thinking about what Marxism is. But let me just read what you write, because I think you said it really well. To understand Marxism, one must grasp that, I'm going to say this word wrong, but that it is an ersatz. Ersatz. Thank you. False. <laughs> okay. Secularized religion. Okay. Uh, it borrowed from the Christian beatific vision, but stripped it of its transcendence. Marx adapted the biblical ideas of peace, freedom from oppression, and the perfected state of man, and he promised that these would uh, mark the end state of communist man after the revolution. Marx provided a vision of a transformed world, a compelling view of human perfection that inspired conviction and a willingness to sacrifice to achieve it. So, yeah, the question was, is there something sort of intrinsically wrong or, or evil about communism or Marxism. And I think, it, like you were saying, it kind of get, gets back to like, what do you think about man and man's nature? Is, is man perfectible? Is his nature perfectible? If so, then Marxism might be a, a worthwhile uh, venture that we should all, you know, you know, have a revolution for, you know. But if not, then where might that you know, eventually lead us, you know, what, and I think, I think history tells that story. Give an example of some of the things you tell stories, for example, in, in your book about, uh, you know, people would come to your door with jackets, you know, coats, 
Mm. And I'm guessing these were people in the West and they had heard that people were coming from the East to the West and they wanted to help. People took collections up at their churches. So what was kind of your day, daily experience like in terms of help, helping people um, with, you know, um, with, with their, their daily needs as they escaped the East? They came over <clears throat> almost with PTSD. Now that I'm hearing that term in other circumstances, I recognize it in them. They had been so battered, so intimidated, so in some cases physically beaten. They, some of them had been incarcerated. This first wave of people that got over before the wall opened up had gotten there through other means. They had swum rivers. They had carried their children on their shoulders through woods. They had left uh, pretending they were going on a holiday and you know, ended up in Czechoslovakia and then made their way through Hungary and then somehow made it over the barbed wire. They were gutsy. They were brave, but they were shattered emotionally. Um, when they ended up then in a little apartment in a shelter, first of all, they were spent. Second of all, they had no idea how to begin. When you've spent your whole adult life resisting, you know what you were against, but you've never lived in a situation where you had choices. So we helped them get apartments. We needed to get them out of these shelters, which were awful. And as soon as more people came over, it got bad. So if they had the luck to find two apartments that were available, they would then come to me and say, which one should I take? And I would say, I'm not going to decide that for you. You have to decide. Oh, I can't decide that. Well, let's make a list. Here are the attributes you like about this one. Here are the ones you don't. Let's do the same. They, their capacity for decision-making was never developed because they never had choices. The little girl who lived upstairs, we took in one family for a year. Um, I took her to get school supplies. And I'd say, Yana, which erasers would you like to get? And there's a whole big display of colorful different kinds of pencils and erasers. I said, I can't, I can't, I don't know. And she's just overcome. So I said, all right, turn around. And I would take three and say, okay, from these, which would you like? And you say, okay, I want that one. Making decisions was hard. People who would come across in Berlin, right after the wall opened, they'd give them a hundred marks, they call it Begrüßungsgeld, like welcome money. And they would go to KDV, which was a huge department store there. And this is, these are people who haven't ever really seen a display of fresh fruit. They would go into these places and wander around with big eyes like this, and the big counters of meat in huge slabs and canvas, all these things, they wander around and so overwhelmed with so many things, they would come out still clutching their little hundred mark bill, unable to decide, they were just overwhelmed. Well, then when you start engaging them to talk about things, honestly, they're looking over their shoulder to see who would be listening. We're saying, you're safe here, you can, you can talk, but to get them then to open up to talk about what they've been through, including hard things, to openly criticize the previous regime, or to talk about matters of faith, it took a long time of building a bridge of trust. And we found that handing out things to people, you know, bed sheets and coats and whatever, that was useful, they needed them. But what was far more valuable was to focus on a smaller number of people and to relationally 
walk with them through the first several months, introduce them to other people, have them in our homes. I had them over for an Advent tea uh, that first fall, and they were just blown away. Why would you have us in your home? And they're looking around, and you know, they're holding china in their hands. It was a real adjustment for them to move into a place that has um, wealth and you know, an ease of living, but they were suspect of it. And one of the young ladies that I interviewed said, we know Marx was a false god, but we don't want to worship the golden calf of the West either. She nailed it. She absolutely nailed it. It's almost like you were having to teach people how to like reclaim their humanity. Mm -hmm. um, here's I, a question for you. Uh, Alexander, this is one of the questions that you, you provided for us. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the best I can do. I've said that name plenty of times. I always say it incorrectly. Yeah. Wrote about what he called the culture of the lie. Mm -hmm. What did he mean by that? Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. He said that living under a communist regime fostered a situation where everyone had to guard what they said. Um, they had a language that they had to use uh, that was acceptable, that would not get you in trouble, but everyone knew that that was a lie. So we're, it's interesting, the longer I've lived away from that situation, when we put air hooks, quotation marks around something, we know that we're signaling, we don't really believe that, but we're saying this in quotation yeah. marks, that is the, you know, somehow correct iteration. He said that communism is based on a lie at its core that man is a creation of God and he is responsible to God for his moral actions and that the highest authority is not the party, which is what communism posits, but the highest authority is in fact God. Mm -hmm. That every human being living under that practices this culture of lying. And he said, it's not a question of we and they, guys in the black hats and guys in the white hats. He said, the dividing line runs right through every human Ooh, being. Yeah. Ooh, exactly. <laughs> he said that, Václav Havel in Czechoslovakia said something much like that too. They really understood the human condition is a place of tearing each one of us because we all have little lies that we don't want brought to the surface mm -hmm. and the political situation is one manifestation but there are others in the human realm and in the spiritual realm and he pointed us toward that with a very i think self-critical but loving eye one weekend i got hbo for free <clears throat> you know how they do that from time to time so that you might get it <clears throat> and pay for it anyway i binge watched Chernobyl, the, the miniseries that HBO put out. I don't know if you ever saw that or not, Dr. Elliot. Oh, it was amazing. Yeah, it's, it's quite good. And um, it speaks to this because essentially, without giving much away, I mean, you, you probably already know this, but essentially the reason that Chernobyl happened is because of the lying that was so steeped in the culture that no one could tell the truth. No one could... Everyone was about either butt kissing so that you didn't get disciplined by your superiors or you couldn't admit that something was failing. You just had, you looked the other way. It was a culture of look so habitually looking the other way or living in a lie that
that when you literally had a nuclear disaster staring you in the face, you, they were in denial of it. So, and it's, there's a few things that HBO has produced where it's not a, a, a kind of um, one-sided towards the left. And that was one thing. There was something actually like a critical of the way of life in communism I thought was interesting. So I'd commend that to, to people listening. But let me ask this because, you know, we're told that the West, uh, America in particular, is fundamentally flawed. We're told now, Cornell West recently said um, in the wake of our racial violence, uh, the, this, the experiment has failed, which the only thing to do when an experiment fails is go back in the lab and break a few more eggs and you know, make a different omelet or what have you, you know, tr try something different. Um, do you share that assessment? Has the West failed? And if not, what has the West done right? What has America done right? I don't think this is a question so much about the West failing. I look at the East and I look at the West and I see both failing in important ways because of a misunderstanding of the human heart. What has happened increasingly, both East and West, is looking to a government system to define truth, to take the ultimate power, and to then shape human beings into a vision that they have. Again, West had one, East had one. Both are flawed in that they have not oriented themselves toward the ultimate source of truth and tried to structure a civilization, a culture, where faith is at the center, reverence toward God is at the center, and that the practice of that remains, and the correction of it, remains using his means. The choice that the East made in resisting communism was to resist peacefully and to do so embracing people from different parties, from different faiths, but to embrace them as allies in seeking to do it God's way. And in talking with people in the West who have resisted, people in the civil rights movement, people like John Perkins, uh, people that have made huge strides, they opt, Martin Luther King, who, who decided that the only way to do this with integrity was to resist doing it God's way, and that is peacefully. And in that sense, I see an absolute parallel to what people in the East accomplished and what people in the West have accomplished at times by using peaceful resistance and by reshaping the hearts of men and women rather than assuming that a government system can inculcate a worldview in them or govern the intentions of men and women that cannot be shaped by external forces. It cannot produce good doing it through man's means alone. Yeah. Well, right now, you know, we watch the evening news and we're not seeing peaceful, um, ah, now my wife is calling me. Uh, we don't, we're not seeing peaceful um, protests, I guess, in many respects, we're seeing outright, you know, rioting, and that seems to almost be encouraged. 
Um, I'm, I'm actually wondering what our response, I think as Christians, we're going to have to figure out what our response is as well. Uh, as, uh, as I said in the sermon the other day, you know, Christ is being canceled, you know, um, his head's being lopped off of statues and churches aren't meeting and things like that. So I'm thinking about how we respond, but let me, I'd like to transition a little bit so that you can talk about some of the nonprofit work that you've done. One of the things that, you know, I think that say conservatives sort of, um, you know, take flack for us, you know, we, you know, we believe in private property, we believe in capitalism, we defend the rich, uh, we defend a, a kind of system of selfish, selfishness, etc. Uh, but in fact, uh, those who follow Christ, uh, those who might consider themselves traditionalist or conservative, um, often take the words of Christ and his service to the poor very much to heart. And you've done a lot of that in your own life. I'd really like to hear um, about some of the nonprofits you've started, and the good works that they do. I think you're a wonderful example for us and um, how, to, how to hold the traditional points of view and biblical points of view, and, and that also leads to, to charity. Mm -hmm. It was kind of a crazy story that led me to even get involved with this. So after Candles by the Wall came out and I'd spoken all over Europe and I'd gone to embassies and I'd been on the radio in Russia and all this kind of stuff, I moved back to the United States in 1995 and I'm praying, okay, Lord, what's next? And I'm thinking, okay, you know, Radio Free Europe, you know, something with the USIA or something, you know, like I've got this future mapped up for me. And I'm praying and said, okay, Lord, what's next? And he says, go into the inner, inner cities of America, find the people who are true to me, write about them, speak about them, and be their friend. And I'm thinking, did I hear that right? Go into the inner cities of America. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, right, Barbara in the hood. Like, this is just not my natural habitat. But I, it came so many times with that exact phrasing. Oh, wow. This is just so not my world. But in a sense, the people that I had found who had resisted communism peacefully had the kind of a heart. They were also helping their neighbors and they were doing it peacefully. So I went and I looked initially to find the people who are doing God's work, but who are not just faith-based, but generally Christ-centered in their work. And I also looked for people who were changing lives, who were transforming lives. So I go to a homeless shelter and I wouldn't ask them, how many beds do you have or how many meals do you serve? I'd say, how many people are you helping leave homelessness. I go to a prison program and I'd say, don't tell me how many volunteer hours you have. I want to know how many people don't come back. Mm -hmm. What's the recidivism rate? I went to programs that work with gang members and I said, okay, how many of them that you're reaching out to don't go back in gangs? So it was questions like that. I was looking for what are people doing that actually transforms lives? Drug addiction, same thing. What's the recidivism rate? And I found people all over the country. I mean, whether it was in Denver or Fresno or Chicago or Milwaukee or Dallas or Houston or wherever, people who were genuinely changing lives. So I traveled all over the country. I interviewed in the end, it's like 350 people, I think. So I wrote a lot. Eventually, the Templeton Foundation very graciously funded specific research um, that then became a book, Street Saints. 
uh, they publish it, and then I was asked to do a companion volume. Um, so I spoke a lot about these groups. I traveled. This was about the time of the whole faith-based initiative for the George W. Bush um, administration. So they were calling and asking me for examples that you could use in speeches and that kind of thing. And then when it became a real project of the government, then I was one of the people, I know many, but who evaluated applications for grants. I'd seen a lot of examples of good things. And I wanted my city to have the benefit of some of this study of, you know, best practices and what works and what doesn't. So I did my Nehemiah march around the city. Okay, where is the wall down in Houston, which has a very vibrant nonprofit sector. But the one place where I found the wall down was in the employment piece. Mm -hmm. so if somebody is coming out of a homeless shelter and they have left drugs and they've been out of prison and they want to reenter society, that gap between how you get from here to there was too big. So the work-faith connection was birthed, um, and eventually the support for it in the city, the support in terms of the board, the support with at least initial funding came together. I had a plan, I knew exactly what would do with the people, but I never, as we were doing this whole thing, I never felt that I was being called to lead it. I was pretty sure I was being called to birth it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, work faith was about to be birthed, and we had a little bit of a snag with different visions of how it should how it should go. And I'd made a hard decision on one person who I didn't think could go further with us, and then lost some funding and part of my board over that decision. And that afternoon, I think, oh, Lord, please, was this the right thing to do? And in walked. Sandy Schultz that afternoon said she'd been out of the market for a little while, but she, you know, taking care of the kid, but she wanted to come in. She's looking for a nonprofit to maybe get involved with. And I said, I can only think of one where you would be a perfect fit. <laughs> I want to go back just a little bit to some of the, there's a little bit of conversation happening on Facebook about communism, socialism, that kind of thing. And these are conversations that are happening a lot as we head into an election and people will say things like, well, socialism isn't really that bad, especially democratic socialism. Um, and then you have people on the other side saying, well, every place that has attempted socialism, which is, I guess, just a stepping stone to communism in some people's minds, uh, has gone poorly. And we look at things like China or Venezuela and or Cuba. I mean, you can go on and on and, and see that they're problematic, but then some people will say, well, but they weren't doing it the way we could do it. So maybe can you just speak a little bit to Americans coming into the next election year, what should we be having going on in our minds so that we don't turn out like Venezuela? And how do we think through these things as we decide kind of what our next steps are? It's a big question and you have like three minutes or something. I'm so sorry. I just say prudence would indicate that thinking that a model is going to work just if you could do it differently is not based on experience. The wisdom of governing comes from incremental changes that are visible in a society as a whole. Venezuela has a result to show. North Korea versus South Korea has a result to show. Hong Kong versus mainland China has a result to show. Hmm. And anyone who thinks that implementing a system that would give that government control over all the means of production needs to think really hard 
about the examples of the places that have tried it. Thomas Moore wrote a book about um, the kind of system that would be based on that. It was called Utopia, meaning yeah. it doesn't exist anywhere. Every community that has been tried that is based on those principles has failed because it is contrary to man's nature. Well, uh, Dr. Elliott, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we want to thank our listeners for, for listening here at KPFT on the HD2 channel. We're here every Thursday at 5 o'clock. We are Theology on Air. We talk about theological, moral, religious issues. And uh, I'm Evan McClanahan. I'm the pastor over at First Lutheran. Sarah, Stones, uh, you can, Sarah Stone, you can find her at uh, Memorial Drive Presbyterian Church. And so we do really want to thank you for listening. And again, uh, uh, Barbara, thank you so much for joining us. We're, we need to have you back, and we need to have you, I think, in person at a Theology on Tap event if we ever get together and drink beer again. Uh, I think I think you'd have a lot of fun, and you'd be right in your element with, you know, young adults and, uh, you know, fighting the good fight. So, uh, so everyone else, uh, I want to thank you again for listening. And uh, until next time, we want to encourage you to question freely, think deeply, and disagree as needed. <laughs>